you're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. to you this week as I had jury duty for two days in a row. Uh, I went into the room thinking, oh, I'm a pastor, and I'll, um, you know, make some off, offset comments and tell them that I have four kids, and there's no way they're going to give me jury duty. There's just no way they're going to give it. Well, it turns in, I go, I go to the state house down there at Washington and coffee. It's not the state uh, kind of jury duty thing with normal trial lawyer stuff. It's, it's, I come in there, and the first thing, you're in the federal grand jury federal pool. And I'm like, oh, holy smokes, like, I feel like this is a Tom Clancy novel that's about to happen. I thought we were going into, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, and it turns out to be this federal thing. And uh, anyways, they put my little number on me, and out of like 90 people, uh, I'm the second one called. So I'm one of 16 on this uh, jury thing, and I have it for a year, which is crazy, uh, once, once a month for a year. And so um, just if anybody ever asked, is your pastor uh, committed to his civic duties of being a citizen here in the United States of America? You can confidently say yes for the next year. I feel like if anybody ever pulls me over from now on out like a police officer, I should just show them my jury duty card and say, sir, I've paid my, I've paid my duties here uh, as, as a citizen of the United States. But, but I bring that up because, you know, when you're in uh, kind of courtroom uh, stressful situations, um, you can kind of see um, how important... Um, when we talk about inheritance and Ephesians and, and, and kind of the wealth of Jesus, how important spiritual wealth is in critical and crisis situations. When, you, when you're in a, a courtroom situation or if you're in an ER situation or you're in kind of a, a life crisis situation, you can cr- pretty quickly see um, how hard it is, how hurting it is, how helpless and hopeless it is to be kind of spiritually poor. If, if you're in a situation where there's a lack of hope or there's a lack of focus or a lack of future and you don't know where you are, who you are, what you're doing in life. And spiritually, you know, you don't have a sense of, 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 of confidence in who you are as a person. Uh, you can kind of feel um, hopeless and broken. But in situations like even this last week when I was seeing different people in crisis situations, in critical situations, you could see the confidence that comes out of knowing who you are in Christ, knowing who you are in God, knowing who you are in the world. And so we're continuing on in this conversation in Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, we're going to hear Paul, for the very first time in all of the book, to not just talk about the Ephesians and not just talk about God, but to talk about himself. In other words, uh, he kind of starts the conversation off with a you story. He talks about you, meaning you in the room, and you being the Ephesians, the plural idea there of like, this is who you are in Christ. And pretty quickly, by the beginning of Ephesians 2 and into the sort of middle section, he starts to talk about, as we talked about last week about family, he talks about the we story, the family of God's story, and he starts talking about how we're not just inheriting things as individuals, but we're inheriting things as family. But the beginning of Ephesians 3, it's distinct, it's different. It's a bit of a turning point because he, he stops talking about the you in the room and he stops talking about the us and the we in the room and he starts talking about the, the me, the Paul story. He starts sharing about his heart, his mission, his motive, his background, his intent. I think it's powerful because, because all of faith is relational, but especially ministry is relational. And, and, and you can sense this imperative in Paul that if he's going to minister to somebody, he wants them to know who he is. So I want to start this morning with this question. Do you know uh, what your personal mission statement is? Have you ever read the book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, or one of these kind of leadership books? They'll, they'll tell you that 
Words are important. Words create worlds, and language will, will dictate the culture inside of you and the culture around you. And, and, and a, lot of, a lot of personal leadership and, and group leadership and, and, and corporate leadership, uh, it starts with defining what your purpose is. Uh, uh, Stephen Covey says you, you want to almost imagine like you're at your own funeral and, and you want to think about if somebody were to get up and share about you at the end of your life, like what would they say about you? Write that down and then do that on purpose is what he's saying, to be an effective person, to be a full person, to be a, a focused person, whatever it is that you want to fill in the blank, that you don't want to live life on accident, you want to live life on purpose. And if you, if you have a job, if, if, if you work for a corporation or work for, for a group of people, I would guess that probably the group of people that you work for does have a purpose statement and a mission statement because typically when people are dealing with money and customers and employees, they're not really dealing with things and taking steps on accident. They, they're, they're dealing with money and people and customers and employees and they know that in dealing with those things, you have to have a purpose. And you have to know what your purpose is because you don't want to deal with money and customers on accident. You want to deal with money and customers with a sense of purpose, with a sense of focus. I remember when I was 16... Um, I applied for my first uh, cool job, not like the lemonade stand or, you know, selling, uh, walking people's dogs in the neighborhood or mowing people's lawns. Like the first kind of cool job, I went to go try out and, and apply to go work at the Gap in the mall. The Gap, which was, it was cool in 1999. I don't know if Gap's still cool or if that's not cool to talk about anymore, but I applied to go work at the Gap. And so uh, I put on all my, my Gap stuff, and I went over there, and they didn't even, they had so many people applying, they didn't even, you know, apply or, or, or talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. They talked to you in this group kind of interview session. And so I was with, like, four or five year, other 16-year-old people. And I remember, like, they kind of went through the typical background questions, but pretty quickly they got this really deep question that I hadn't really been prepared for. I'd read all the Google articles about what to say and what not to say about your strengths and weaknesses, but they threw me this curveball question, and the question they asked was, what do you think is the purpose statement, or what do you think is the mission of GAP? Like, if you had to tell, you know, with a few words or a few pictures or a few stories or anecdotes or adjectives to define what GAP is, like, what would you say that it was? And, uh, and, and so they, they first came to me. I was like the first one on the list to answer the question. And I just started firing off ideas. I said, well, um, I mean, uh, I said, Abercrombie and Fitch is right next door. I said, for one, Gap uh, models have shirts on. So that's a difference. Uh, I, said, um, I said, you know, I think it probably matters. Like you see a lot of multicultural, you know, people in the ads and in the, in the, in the people, like the models on the wall are kind of like from Asia or they're Indian or they're African-American or they're white or they're Polish. So, like you have this kind of eclectic mix of people. And I said, overall, it just seems like it's bright in there. Like the lights are kind of brighter and the colors are bright and they're kind of, you know, not deep maroon, black and white tones, but there's yellows and oranges and greens and purples. And the lady pulls out, it was incredible, I'll never forget it, pulls out the, the mission statement for GAP. She says, actually, it's not surprising me, Oliver, that you say that because the things that you see in GAP, they're all on purpose, they're not on accident. And the things that we've done in here, they all have what's, but they also have how's. Like we do things differently from Abercrombie and we do those things differently for a reason because we are all responding to ultimately the why, the vision. And so she, she reads me the GAP thing. She says, GAP exists to create emotional connections with customers around the world. So she breaks it down for me. She's like, so the reason why, the reason why we don't have models with nine packs, as uh, Batman likes to say, in our ads and magazines is because most people don't have nine packs. 
and that's not connecting with people. And so we're trying to, to tell a story with our modeling and so forth that helps to connect with people, and nine packs don't connect. And she says, and the reason why we have multiple races and ethnicities in the pictures is because we want to connect to a global audience. There's, there's gaps in Puerto Rico, and there's gaps in Yugoslavia, and there's gaps in Russia, there's gaps in China. And we want to connect with the world, not just our, 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 our local region. And the reason why you see so many bright colors is because bright colors are inspiring. They're creative. They make you think more. They think about other things outside the box than just two or three or four tones or colors, black, white, or gray. It makes you think about creativity and its inspiration. So everything we do has a purpose. I'm going to put some of these uh, mission statements on the board. I want you guys to see how this might play off in your normal customer experience. So look at Starbucks, for example. Starbucks exists to inspire and nurture the human spirit. One cup at a time one neighborhood at a time. Simple words, but powerful, have massive implications, and maybe you've been to Starbucks before and felt inspired to think differently. The quotes on the cup or the music that they're playing might help you to think creatively, but yet they still have a local feel where they want to write your name on the cup and feel like you have a personal connection. Those things aren't an accident. Somebody decided ahead of time to do that. Apple is a company that is known to them, at least, to design Macs, the best personal computers in the world, along with OS. 10, iLife, iWork, and professional software. Apple leads the digital music revolution with its iPods and iTunes online store. And so when uh, they do the WDC this last Wednesday and announce the new iPhone, like they're not just selling you a phone, they're selling you a story. And they're trying to tell a story about we are good and we are getting better. Our, our goal is to never stand still, never to get stuck, but to always grow to be the best is maybe what they would say. And Coca-Cola, lastly, to refresh the world in mind and body. Nothing of this talks about soda, right? to refresh the world in mind and body and spirit, to inspire moments of optimism and happiness through our brands and our actions. So what is your personal mission statement? Like, what is your what and what is your why and what is your how? Because here's the reality, is that, uh, that all of us, if we were to, to, to reflect and think about the last week or the last month or the last year, we would notice there are certain patterns in our life and our actions actually are less on accident than we think. The actions that we do, the things and choices that we make, they tend to be patterned and habitual. And typically those patterns and habits don't come out of nowhere. All of us actually have what's and how's and why's. All of us are, are responding to what it is we think is most valuable in the room. All of us have a mission statement whether we know it or not. And so some of us, some of us have experienced as young people, as adolescents, deep cruelty in social relationships and in friendships. And so somewhere along the line, we made a decision at 8 or 10 or 15 to, to promote kindness in the world. Some of us in this room have decided with your whole life, and you wouldn't have written it on a website or have a blog or whatever that you had a mission statement to talk about, but in your heart of hearts, like you are here today and pursuing Jesus in some part because you desire that there would be kindness in the place of cruelty. That in your dealings with being a manager or a teacher or a boss or a friend, that you wouldn't do the things that other people have done to you and you decide kindness. Some of you guys are here today because you deeply want to protect and be advocates for children. You've seen children be victimized. Children tend to be weak in every situation and voiceless. And you've seen them been abused and neglected in families and in schools. And so you are here and you work at the teaching job that you work at because you are an advocate for children. You're not just there to write up on a whiteboard. Some of you guys are here today because... You're a hard worker. 
and your parents taught you that working hard, anything worth doing is worth doing well, and so you've, you've worked hard at what you do. And so my point is, is not to tell you what your purpose or mission statement should be. It's just to imply to you that you have one and that if you don't know what, what that is, then you won't be able to live on purpose and you'll be much more vulnerable to live on accident. And so in Ephesians 3, when Paul opens up his story, I want to I want to impart to you this idea is that he's telling his story, but he's not telling his story for no purpose. In other words, he's telling a story that's not really about him in the first place. He's always telling his story in the ways that he could glorify Jesus as the hero of the story. And there's even a, a devotional somewhere in there to think about the way we tell stories. There's me stories that are about me, and there's us and we stories about how we're different or how we're better. And then there's, there's them stories about how they're the problem, or there's you stories about why you're to blame. And there's all sorts of stories that we can tell with our lives, but you can tell Paul's pattern and his, his, his policy is to always tell stories that make Jesus the hero. And so I want to I kind of impart this to you is that he's telling a story, but if you read into it, I really think that Paul is speaking to us not only about his story, but about his mission statement. He's telling the audience in, in the book, and he's telling the Ephesians, some of those that he doesn't know, not just like what he's trying to say, but why he's trying to say it. The thing that drives him, the thing that keeps him up at night, the thing that has him in a prison. I read in a commentary uh, the other day, he's in chains in a prison in, in, in Rome, and he's writing this thing, and there's literal street waste, just human waste passing along the sewers right by his feet. He's chained up writing this letter. He says, it's important that you hear what I have to say. He, I want you to hear what I'm saying and how I'm saying, but I also want you to know why I'm saying it. And so I want to read to you, just before we get started, a quote that I'll put on the board of, of what I really read here in Ephesians 3, the beginning of it, 1 through 13, of what I see as Paul's mission statement, the mission statement of a missionary. And I want to warn you beforehand is that the mission statement that I'm about to read is incredibly inspiring. In fact, it's a type of mission statement that Starbucks or Apple or Gap would die to have a brand for because it's the kind of mission statement you'd want to give your life over to. And I want to warn you today, if you don't want to be a missionary, if you don't want to labor for the kingdom, if you don't want to do great things for God, then don't listen to what I'm about to say. Because this mission, this mission statement is not just for Paul. If it was, he would have kept it to himself. But I believe the reason why he shares it is because the mission statement of a missionary and a minister is the mission statement for every Christian in the kingdom. So I want to read this, this to you, and I want you to think about it as we read through the passage today. This is what I believe is the bare bones of what Paul is saying he exists on earth to do. This is why he ticks. This is what keeps him up at night. This is his purpose statement. I believe that Paul says many things. But the very first thing that I hear Paul saying in Ephesians 3, 1 through 13 is that he says, my mission is to reach the nations for the gospel. He says, I, I've traveled probably more than any other Christian of my time. I've seen so many faces and names. I've seen so many different types of foods and religious rituals. And he says that all of them are part of my mission and part of my purpose because I'm meeting them to reach them. I want them. I need them to know the gospel of Jesus. This is the burden that I carry everywhere I go. And he says, I'm a prisoner of God's grace. The reason I do ministry and mission is because, because something has so captivated me. Some power, some force, some, some, uh, some gift of God, some gift of grace has so captured my imagination that I can't get out of it. I can't even have a thought outside of it. I can't afford to, to do anything that isn't motivated by this thing called grace. And he says, as I move forward in this grace, he says, 
There's this mystery that I carry that I continually try to expose and unfold and unpack and teach everybody. But people are so, um, they're, they're so futile in being able to grasp the mystery that I carry. And so I, I, I reach for words and I reach for stories and I reach for axioms that I might communicate this mystery that I have in myself. And I'll give my life explaining this mystery to others. Ultimately, that my goal would be this. Way more than money, way more than, than expansion of of. of of commerce, that I might suffer. This is, this is, this is what, I, what I long for. This is what I hope for. I, I hope to suffer for the nation's glory. This is, what, this is what I want to do. So Ephesians, 1, Ephesians 3, 1 says this, and I want to walk through each of these one by one because I believe this is a mission statement, not just for Paul, but it's a mission statement for missionaries. And furthermore, that Missionary isn't just somebody that we support and send off with a passport, that, that in having the Holy Spirit, we all become missionaries. And as we read this mission statement, this mission statement doesn't just speak just to Paul or just to somebody long, long ago or somebody far away, but it speaks to us. That each of us, in some ways, fit into this story and this purpose statement. So he starts off this way. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. We talked about this last week. There was, there was a divide within the church in the early church. One of the greatest struggles that the church ever faced was the difference, not between white and black, but between Jew and Gentile. Those that were insiders in the law, those that had the covenant of Moses, those that knew the law and walked the law, those that were religious, and everybody else. And Paul says at the beginning of his missionary journeys, they set up Peter and some of these other disciples to care for the Jews and make the transition out of the old covenant into the new covenant for the Jews. But he says that Paul is spending the, the entirety of his life and the first fruits of his work towards what is called the Gentiles, the outsiders, the ones who don't get it, the ones who don't have the law, the ones that were not invited to the party. Surely you have heard about the administration, he says, of God's grace that was given to me for you. In other words, he's saying, I'm not selling you what I'm not smoking. It's gone, it's gone in me so it could go through me to you. It's not just for me. In other words, the gift that I have, I've come to realize it's not just about me and my little bubble and my little comfort and my space. He says, every gift that I have that comes from God, I know that it has a, a, an opportunity to give to somebody else. He says, the grace that I have, I know that it's not for me to keep, it's for me to give. He says, that is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already taught you briefly. When I was, um, when I was young, my dad told me a story about his grandfather, George Wong. George is kind of this epic, iconic guy in our family because the story is that he had a watch that was given to him as a gift and he sold it out of a briefcase so he could buy three more watches and then from there, nine more watches and today there's 27 watch shops all throughout Hong Kong with my grandfather's name on it that has been one of the longest retail chains in Hong Kong locally owned uh, of all time. And so my grandfather has this really uh, famous story. My dad, who some of you guys have met, is kind of like a strong-willed child <laughs> and a strong-willed adult, and he kind of uh, has his own pur purpose statement, his own mission statement. He's kind of going his, his own way. And so when he was young, he was 16, and he, he lied on his, uh, on his um, application to become a police officer and said that he was 18. And so he, uh, he went off, he ran away from home because his dad didn't want him to join the police force, and he went off to go and join the police force, lied about it, and um, got his first job, but had nowhere to live. And so uh, during his time from about 16 to 17 to 18, right around that time, my dad uh, 
actually went and, and he found a place, a church, and knocked on the door and found a room from a priest that he could live in um, for free. And so every day he would go out and work in the police force, and then he'd go home and live kind of in this, uh, this Catholic priest, this little like dormitory area where he could stay for free. And at the end of the time, my dad said that uh, he had made a good bit of money and he stored all of it away. And at the time when he was about to move out and get his first apartment, he went back to the priest to go and find the priest to go and pay back what he felt like he owed. He just told the priest, look, I've been here living you know, for free for the last year, year and a half, and so I'm going to go ahead and pay you back what I owe. And when he went to go meet the priest, the priest told him that he was not going to take his money. And the reason he said, I'm not going to take your money, is because your father has been paying the rent the entire time. In the Chinese culture, to leave your home and to dis- disrespect and disavow your family is a huge deal. But something happened to my dad in that moment when he realized that his father, even in his disrespect, even in the disapproval of the relationship, even running away from my, my grandfather, that, that George had always been there for him and had always fought for him and had always paid his way. And this is what I mean by grace. This is what I believe Paul is saying about grace. Grace is the moment when God finds you in your weakest and your worst, in your deepest and your darkest sin. And in that moment, there's a powerful exchange that happens when you realize that the love of God doesn't just find you in your successes, but finds you in your sins and your failures. In the hour of your greatest need, in the hour of your greatest dependence, in the hour of your greatest sin, when you're running from him and fighting from him, you find out that God loves you and chooses you and wants you still. And this is what the ministry of grace does to it. It wrecks us. If you know anybody or, or if you've gone through seasons of this in your life, when you recognize the depth and the width and the love of God, when you realize that in your deepest, darkest addiction, in your deepest sin and deepest need and hour, you find out that there's nothing that you are doing that is helping you or God, that you are not fighting for yourself, but you're fighting against God, you find that God in that moment wants you still. There's a soul changing. There's a, there's a deep, guttural change in transaction that happens when grace catch, catches hold of you. You become, what, I'm, what I would argue Paul is saying, you become a prisoner to that grace. You'll have people in your life that are those, those big, burly, tough guys, you know? And, and they're fighters. And, and sometimes in high school or, or even in adult life, they're, they're kind of like these bullies, you know? They, they've got maybe the tattoos or they've got the huge bow chest and they're tough and they're, and, and, and they're intimidating and imposing. And then, and then they go through a season. They go through a season, maybe, maybe it's cancer, maybe it's loss, maybe it's heartache, and they get th- their life gets thrown up against the rocks and none of their strength matters to them anymore. And they realize that there are seasons when their strength isn't enough. They realize that they can't fight for themselves. They get thrown into that place, and in that place, they find the grace of God. Have you ever met a strong man before that realizes he's weak in the Lord? And all of a sudden, all of the John Wayne kind of charisma and toughness begins to melt away, and instead you hear tears of grace and hear tears and, and stories of, 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 of God's grace meeting them. And all of a sudden, they're no longer fighters against the weak or bullies against the weak. Now now it seems that all of their strength becomes dedicated to helping the weak and serving the weak and helping those around them. Have you ever seen somebody's life get impacted by grace before? 
changed. I mean, not just I'm gonna do better and try harder. No, like changed by grace, become a prisoner and captive to grace. Has that ever happened to you before? And every waiter and waitress, it's just impossible to see anybody, anybody through the lens of judgment anymore through grace. That waiter, that waitress, all you can see is just, they're just, you're just thinking to themselves, they're, they're totally unlovely, right? They're, they're totally being a jerk. They're totally being rude. But you see that person, you're just thinking, man, they're a grace moment away from finding home in Jesus. And that thought just takes you captive. It just wrecks you. You can't look at anyone the same anymore when you see grace. When you look at, the, at people through the eyes of grace, all you can see is that they're prodigal sons, just one moment away from finding Jesus. It just changes everything that, that you look at. There's a, uh, some of you guys know, know, know Debbie, Debbie Price, who, I don't know if she's, she's here today, I don't know if Debbie, there she is, yeah, we were talking the other day, Debbie serves at Miracle Hill, she says, this is the craziest thing, she said, um, you're going to think I'm weird, she says, they have me doing this thing where I work on files at Miracle Hill, of guys that have kind of come through the system, and, and I don't know what it is about it, but she says, I'm in there by myself in this room, and I'm putting these files away, and the files, they, they say like deceased on them. Like, in other words, there's these files of these people that have gone through the miracle health system, and for whatever reason, like, either too soon or, or, or they're old in age, they, they, they pass away. And she says, I, just, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to explain it. You might think it's weird, but I just sit there, and I weep over these pictures. Like, I'm literally in there, and, and I'm by myself, and I'm just crying over these pictures. She's like, is that weird? Is that something that I should just go, like, go see a counselor for? It's like, what's, what is this about? And I thought about it, and I said, I think you're, you're just, I, I think you're, you're, you're abiding with what heaven's actually saying about each of these people. Like, it's almost like you're giving them a funeral service that they never had because, because the life has passed away and oftentimes nobody ever recognizes it. And I think as you're, as you're putting these files from one to the other, you're recognizing the humanity of it, the story of it, the person behind it. You're recognizing the grace story that God was writing their, in their life, either successfully or without success, that God was reaching that person right where they were every moment and every breath that they lived. This is what I believe is the, 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 the prison cell of grace that's so powerful and so wonderful. You realize that, that everyone, that no one earns God's love and everyone is one step away from coming home in Jesus. And maybe we could think about this question as well, and it takes us a little bit outside our, our, our central path and point today. But what if the way that we treat others and the grace that we offer others is actually just, it's showing us what we actually believe about the grace of God? What if the measure of grace we distribute to others is showing us how much grace we believe we've received from Jesus? Like when we respond to somebody that's difficult or hard or lazy or inept or incompetent, if we're responding to somebody that way, there's a lot of theology that basically says the way that you think about others and the way that you treat others and define what love looks like is actually speaking more about you than about them. And it's telling you about your measure and your understanding of grace. And so what would it look like for a person like Paul to be just captivated by the very grace of Jesus Christ? Not second chance grace or do better, trying harder grace. Not I'll give it to you this time, but next time, you know, fool on me. Like, like real gospel kingdom grace. I believe that the first thing that makes a missionary is you become a prisoner of grace. Verse 4, in reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. 
The mystery is this, that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. And so a good mystery, if you guys have ever seen a Sherlock Holmes before, the best mysteries is when the final scene just kind of shows you little sprinkles of the clues of evidence that were actually in the beginning of the movie in scenes. Like the usual suspects or the prestige or some of these other movies where there's this big aha moment at the end. The satisfaction of it is that the solution was actually in the beginning of the movie, but you just couldn't quite see it to connect the dots. And this is what I feel like is the kind of tentativeness and urgency of Paul is that the gospel story has always been written. There's always been Ruths. There's always been Rahabs. There's always been centurions. There's always been women that asked Jesus that were, that were Samaritans that could ask for inside status, and he granted them inside status. He's saying the mystery has had clues all along, but nobody could understand the mystery in the end. And the mystery of Christ is that Christ is for the nations and that the nations are for Christ. That all of heaven and earth, angels themselves, they all cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in that, in that picture, in that panorama of what they're seeing when they're saying holiness is not just one or not just a few or not just Jewish or not just white or not just rich or not just poor, but the nation's longing for Jesus is what the mystery of Christ is that Paul is trying to preach about. Revolutionary for his day. Revolutionary for our day. That every tribe and every tongue and every nation will confess the name of Jesus. This is the mystery of Christ that missionaries steward, the burden that they steward on a daily basis. My pool right now, uh, I call, Kyra calls the pool the United Nations because there's so many, so many people from wonderful, beautiful countries from Europe and Asia and, and all these places from India and they're, they're all gathered in Simpsonville at the pool. Like, it used to be you have to passport to hear some of these languages, but you're at the pool, and you're hearing, like, literally Rosetta Stone at the pool. Like, people are just using all these languages. And there's something spiritual about it, isn't it? Like, when you're with people from other countries and tribes, and you're, you're recognizing that you actually have more in common than you have in difference, and all the history books and the narratives of war and, and, and tension and friction and all that stuff actually has, has less to do with the true story than, than you talking to the grandmother about her granddaughter and telling her how, she, how beautiful that she is. Like you're leaning in and you're, you're trying to use what little Spanish that you know, your broken you know, Spanish that, or French that you learned from French class, and you're just trying to reach across and communicate and use language to communicate what ultimately is a common narrative and a common story. You're trying to communicate. And there's, there's something powerful, isn't that? When, when miscommunication gives way to communication and when, when lack of clarity turns into clarity between people, when relationship opens up, and what the scriptures are saying is that it's not you and the grandmother. It's not just you and the grandmother. It says the authorities of heaven, they're peering in. They're looking at that moment when you're with a student, an exchange student, talking to them in your classroom and they speak a different language and you're trying to use verbal communication and nonverbal communication. He says the angels are looking at that. The only thing that they can say is manifold wisdom, manifold wisdom, manifold wisdom. Manifold. Manifold means many colors, like Joseph's coat that Joseph prophesied about, that, that the nation of the kingdom of God is manifold, it's colorful wisdom. And only the angels, because they've been before and after, but they, they don't have omniscience, because you can see it's being revealed. Like Peter says that angels look into salvation, and Paul is saying that angels look into the manifold wisdom of God, and all they can do is say glory. All they can give is glory to Jesus because of the manifold wisdom on display is the nations coming to Jesus, being drawn to Jesus. This is what angels get excited about, is when you talk to your neighbor from a different language. This is what the manifold wisdom of God is. Colors, spectacular. Beautiful, tribes, tongues, nations. Did you know that the first miracle in the book of Acts 
Is, is, is tongues, which is essentially rooted at trying to create language and connections between nations that were cursed by Babel? In the beginning of the story, we were scattered by sin. Because of our sin, we were scattered to all four corners. And nobody could create unity or harmony out of thing. But yet, one day on the job, the Holy Spirit comes up into Peter, and tongues fall down. And people are able to speak in multiplicity of languages, communicating the manifold wisdom of God. The nations are for Jesus, and Jesus is for the nations. The nations are Jesus' inheritance. And, 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 and Jesus is the desire of nations, and he's the only one that can draw nations to himself. This is the manifold wisdom of God. And this is what heaven waits for. This is what heaven longs for. This is what they celebrate up there. I mean, they love the idea of nations. They love the idea of weaponry and guns getting, getting transformed into plowshares. They love the idea of peace on earth. They loved the idea of World War II and World War III and Cold War. They loved the idea of God's glory trumping into that scenario and raising up a family of nations together. They love it. They say, look at his power. Look at his grace. Look how he turned enemies into friends and friends into family. Look how he, he helped to, to bridge the gap of hostility. Look how he helped to kill the animosity. Only Christ could do it. Only Jesus, only the Lamb of God could put on display the manifold wisdom of God. And this is, I believe, what, what we have at the cusp of our tongue when we watch the Olympics and we watch things like the World Cup. We think, what about the nations? What could the nations do with one another? What could Jesus do in the nations? We just see the very tip of unity and we get teary about the idea. Like when you see different tribes and different tongues and different nations, when you see multiracial couples coming together and having kids, like this is what angels, I think, and, and, and we as saints like, are celebrating is Jesus being the desire of nations. And so in part, I want to I talk about even today just the idea of mission work. I think oftentimes we sweep mission work into this kind of ethnocentric kind of American thing. And we say, well, missions is outdated and it's very you know, judgmental and it's very kind of imposing on other cultures and the kind of missions is, is over. And there, we don't say it out loud, but I think we say it with our thoughts and with our emotions. And I just want to say, look, like there's unhealthy families, there are unhealthy churches, and there's unhealthy missionaries. But missions, missions is what the angels celebrate as the manifold wisdom of God. Lastly, it says in verse, um, in verse 7, the last thing that I think that a missionary believes in is a missionary becomes a sufferer for others' glory. He says, I became a servant of the gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of his mystery, which for ages past Ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplishes in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and with confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged, listen, because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. Paul writes a mission statement of a missionary, a mission statement for missionaries in this place and in this room. He says the first thing about being a missionary is you have to become a prisoner of grace. He says, he says I was a terrorist in my past life. I had a different name. My name was Saul. I went around killing women and children because of their belief in Jesus. I was an enemy before I was a friend. I was running from God before I, I walked towards him. He knocked me off my horse and I'm a prisoner for grace. 
And he says, from that, the Holy Spirit, he knocks scales off my eyes. I, I could see the, the difference between truth and, and, and lies and light and darkness and, and glory and, 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 and humanity. And I was able to see that, that the heart of God is, is not for individuals to be individually successful, for the nations to be drawn to Jesus. That's my, that's my heart. It's what I've seen the angels talking about in heaven. That's what I want to tell you about. He says, but, but all that, none of that matters. None of, none of that will actually matter. Like, like who I am and what I know, none of that will matters, matter compared to what it is that I choose, choose to do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. What I need to, what I need to, to do, what, the kind of imperative step that I need to do is I need to learn how to take what I know and take who I am and take what I have. And he says, I need to learn how to serve, surrender, and suffer for others to have glory. This, I believe, is the last step of what it takes for a missionary. One is to figure out you're a prisoner of grace. Two is to understand the mystery of grace. And three is to understand the sacrifice and the suffering of grace for others in glory. Is there a father in this room that if they knew they could give a lifetime of work and toil in the farming industry in the field or, or in the factory, like, like is there a father in this room that has a son, that has a daughter, they wouldn't take the opportunity to give a lifetime of service at a factory or a company or in a farm in order that their child would have a better life and a better future for them. Isn't that written into the DNA code of being a father? To be a parent? To want to, to wanna, to wanna give something, in it. and it's not about the thank you. Like, you don't want your son necessarily to come back and even know that you gave those hours. It's not that that's gonna be kind of put in your uh, horizon of vision of what you'd want to see accomplished. It's not that you want to see him come back and say thank you. It's just that you'd want to see him well-being. Like you want to see the work that you do, that you sacrifice and surrender, that they would be able to walk on and do what you were never able to do. This is the nature of wanting to, to sow into the next generation. I mean, there's no mother in this room ultimately like, that's, that's feeding their baby up in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning and they're like waiting for their kid to like come back when they're 12 and say, mom, thank you so much for getting up at three in the morning. I mean, sometimes that's a cool thing to say on Mother's Day cards, but ultimately speaking, like a mom isn't judging their success or their failure based on whether or not they get thank yous. They judge their failure or success based on whether or not their child is able to walk in the fullness of who they're created to be. That's their reward. Whether they get a thank you or not, whether they got, get a reputation or get credit or not, their, their reward is this, that they want to see their child do what they couldn't do and go where they couldn't go because of the sacrifice and surrender the child is able to walk in the glory that the, the parent was able to afford. And this is the nature of parenting. And this is what I believe. Like I see with, with the life of Paul, and maybe you've seen in different missionaries' lives, is that they, they lose this kind of self-interest to get credit. Like, like missionaries that I've seen, missionaries that I've read about, whether it be Jim Elliott or Martyrs of the Faith or, or Paul or Peter or John or people that I know of that minister in Haiti and ministers in other places, like they don't, they don't have this kind of understanding that it's only going to matter if I get credit for the thing that I'm doing. They find themselves in this place where it's like, listen, it's like I want to be, this is the heart of a missionary. It's like if I could spend 10 hours in prayer, that somehow in that 10 hours I could, I could seek the heart of God and know the will of God with the scriptures. Not so that somebody could say, wow, look at that prayer culture that that guy has, or look at how, like usually the true heart of a missionary, it's this attitude of like, I'm gonna pray for 10 hours so I can come out of that and talk for 10 minutes so people can get what I got and don't have to go where I went. I wanna give people what I had to slave for and work for and labor for for free. My attitude is, I wanna give what I've, what I've worked for, I wanna give it away for free because that's what Jesus did for me. 
This is the attitude of a missionary. The attitude of a missionary is like, I want to spend years in persecution, laughed at. I want to spend years in prayer, seeing how to walk in signs and wonders and miracles the way that Acts said. I, want to sp- I would spend years that my son would be able to walk in a day where there isn't persecution where the kingdom of God isn't just an idea, it's an actual culture that people are living out, where the kingdom of God is here and near, where the kingdom of God is actually manifested. I'll spend years in the place of suffering that, that my child or my church or my friend or my partner or my, my spouse could, could walk in for free. This is the heart of a missionary. And this is what I believe Paul is saying is that we're all missionaries, especially us. As, as, a, as a church in a theater, as a church plant that, that, that wants to see this, the city change, that wants to go on mission with one another, this attitude has to be like, I want to suffer so that others can have glory. I want to I I get up at five in the morning and set up all the lights so that others don't have to. I love Michael, like Michael who, who comes and does set up and he runs sound for us. Like one of the things he said is like, why do you do this? I just like doing this because I know that if I do this, that somebody else doesn't have to. It's the attitude of like the people that work in the children's ministry down there is like, I, I love being here and it's not because I want a thank you card or a Starbucks card from Amy or whatever it may be. It's like, I want to be here because I know if I'm here, there's a mom that doesn't have to be here. This is the attitude. It's like, I want to suffer for somebody else's glory. And I think this is the final step of a missionary, the attitude of missionary that we're all on mission together. We're all missionaries. And I want to speak to you, like, we don't talk about missions enough, in my opinion. You may be, be being provoked today for literal passport, tickets, travel, go overseas, raise support, and be on mission. And I want to tell you, you are in good company if that's what you're thinking about. Like right now, Ashley Dills, one of the, the girls in this church who has, you know, just been recently seeing great breakthrough personally in her life, like just recently breakthrough in her life. She's in England right now. She's like over at the Harvest Ministry School with Heidi Baker and she's serving over there and we prayed for her in worship night. It was awesome and she's over there in England. And like she is witnessing the, the manifold wisdom of God. The angels are going crazy over what she's doing. And I just think in, in Western mindset, like we tend to belittle it and we tend to think it's kind of outdated or ethnocentric. It's like, don't let the enemy rob you of that passion, that great mission. Like mission is not for Starbucks. Mission is not for Gap. Mission is for the kingdom of God and the manifold wisdom of God that the nations would learn to desire Jesus and Jesus would give his inheritance to the nations for free. And so my question to you is simple. It's like, what is your mission? And is your mission worth the life that you're giving away? I think a missionary, what is a missionary? A missionary is a person that just realizes it's better to be empty for self, or better to be empty for others than to be full for self. I think the joy of the missionary is that they find out at the bottom of the pit when their cup is empty, there's still room for more. And actually being empty for others is more fulfilling than being full for yourself. And when you become a, you know, a, a prisoner of grace and when you become a steward of this mystery thing and when you become a sufferer for other people's glory, I think great purpose and great power and great focus visits you daily. And a lot of the anxiety stuff and the depression stuff and the stuff you're waiting for God to handle in your life, like you're asking for power so that you'll go, but, but he's saying, I want you to go and then I'll give you the power for it. And I want to ask you today, what's your mission Starbucks knows what its mission is. You work for Starbucks, they'll tell you what your mission should be. We're not in a vacuum for people's missions and purpose, but what's your mission and what's your purpose? Do you know who you are and are you doing it on purpose? Is your mission children? Then give everything you have to children. Sell your stuff and just just block your time off. Read books and give to children. Figure out who's ministering to children well and do that with all of your heart. you, You have a mission because you're a missionary. 
You're here to reach people for the gospel. You're here ultimately to be a prisoner of grace. You've been given great grace, and because you're a recipient of great grace, you are an incredible distributor of grace. So give away what you already have. You don't need to give away what you don't have. Give away what you have. Change the perspective of what you have of understanding that that the purpose of this whole thing, like when we go to have coffee with angels, it's not about personal success and individual, individuality. It's about the nations coming to Jesus. There's no loftier cause, no better cause to give yourself to than the nations coming to Jesus. Is your mission the special needs community? Is your mission racial reconciliation? Is your, is your mission the youth in the next generation? All I'm saying is, 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 is it's, there's not a wrong mission to have in the kingdom of God as long as it's about people, as long as it's about steward and grace. But, but my point is, is if you know who you are and you know where you're headed, then give everything you have towards that agenda. Spare nothing in expense because it's better to be empty for others than to be full, full for self. Know who you are. Give who you are. You know as well as I, when, when, when you deal with people who don't know who they are and don't know where they're going, it completely alienates self-safety, and it, it completely alienates community. It's like when you're spending time with people who don't know what their mission is, don't know who they're, it's, it's impossible to be safe around them because you don't know what to expect. You don't know what they're asking for. You know what they're going to do next. It's like Paul is a powerful minister, not because he's special or because he's smart, just because he knows who he is, and he does what he does on purpose. He knows his purpose. He knows his mission, and his mission is worth his life. And he says, come what may, succeed or fail, rise or fall, I give everything I have to empty myself for the manifold wisdom of God, that the nations would have Jesus, and Jesus would have the nations. Would you stand with me as we respond this morning? And Timothy will come up. I want you to reflect, and I want you to think about this. I want you to talk with your family members and with people that you love. What is your mission? If you don't want to become a missionary, then don't ask yourself these questions. How do we become missionaries? We become a prisoner of grace. We become captivated by this thought that God does not love us for what we do, but he loves us because who we are. He loved the world. He so loved the world. As a matter of fact, he loved it so much he sent his very son to die for the world. To say to people in their broken place, I love you, I want you, I choose you, and there's nothing you can do to change that. Are you a prisoner of his grace this morning? If you're a prisoner of grace and you realize how far he's come for you, you realize you're also a distributor of his grace and you realize how far he sent you. Secondly, if you don't want to become a missionary, don't consider the manifold wisdom of God. Don't consider the the triumphant splendor of what it would look like for the nations to come around his table that Jesus would have them. And lastly, if you don't want to be a missionary, do not, whatever you do, become a sufferer for somebody else's glory. The Jews... The Jews didn't want to suffer for somebody else's glory. They they hated the fact that the Gentiles were going to get what they had to pay for and work for for, for all of their life. How can somebody this late in the game come in and make as much and get as much spiritual life from Jesus as as I have? How can they just come in and be a first-class citizen without having to pay the dues? He says, become a sufferer for others' glory. And so, God, we we thank you that, that your purpose and your mission is bigger than ours that your purpose is is something worthy that we would give our lives for. And I thank you that right now, there's not only just one, but there's several missionaries that are getting raised up to your mission. And I thank you right now that they're realizing that Paul's story is actually our story. And there isn't isn't just great things that we need to do. It's actually small things with great love. There's people in this auditorium, I really believe, because of your Holy Spirit and the scriptures as we come before it, are getting inspired for the nations and getting inspired for mission again. They're starting to, to, 
to account for their week and account for their next week and realizing that, that life is too precious to live on accident, that, that you've called us to live on purpose. So I thank you, Holy Spirit, to do what, what we can't do is to reveal the mystery. God, would you reveal the mystery of your gospel that we would actually begin to value and see that differences are not for, for battles and defense, that differences are meant for diversity and the manifold wisdom of God. We thank you right now for people that are ready to surrender and suffer for others' glory. I thank you, God, that this is what you've done, this is what you're doing, this is what you'll always do. We surrender to you and we follow you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.